The next chapter with Prim's Ripapad is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody, it's Prim. Welcome to the next chapter presented by Baron Davis and Slick Studios. Hope everybody is having a good start to 2023. So this week's guest is former UCLA basketball player turned social media basketball guru, also known as the king of NBA Twitter, Josiah Johnson. Josiah was a forward for the UCLA Bruins from 2001 to 05, but more have come to know him through through his King Josiah 54 Twitter handle and his hilariously witty NBA content and memes. Heading into this interview, I was really intent on just getting to know more about him on a personal level and also what it was like growing up in the Los Angeles area in the shadows of his five-time NBA All-Star father, Marcus Johnson, and how Josiah was able to not only create his own path alongside this familial tradition built on basketball, but separate from that. And I think what I came to realize after this conversation was, number one, there are no accidents when it comes to success. And number two, the setbacks that we experience early in life even through our 20s and even later on in our 30s, are really kind of setting us up for what we were meant to do, meaning the adversity that we endure early in our lives becomes a huge part of our eventual life purpose. So for Josiah, there were so many factors that came into this equation. Art school during third grade, growing up in and around entertainment, as a child, basketball, the Johnson's familial traditions surrounding humor, sports media after college, comedy after college, all of that, plus all the doubts and obstacles he endured has enabled Josiah to become the king of NBA Twitter with his nearly 300,000 followers. And as you'll hear in this interview, it didn't happen overnight. It took a lot of work, a lot of work, and still does today requires a lot of work for him. I think you're really going to enjoy this behind the scenes conversation with someone many of you know via social media, but not necessarily on a personal level. But here is that opportunity. So without further ado, here's Josiah Johnson, aka the king of NBA Twitter. coming over here because um you know we're we for those who are listening we are currently at baron davis davis's slick studios and you've come all over the place and you've been all over the place especially with the nba finals going on you you were hosting a live show last night you had your show this morning you've got a phone call which means we've got a hard out i've got about an hour and 13 minutes to ask you the most personal questions in the world okay but I appreciate you coming over. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. Big fan of Baron, big fan of yourself, me and BD. <laughs> uh, I was in junior high. He was in high school at Crossroads together. So been rocking with BD for a long time. Came up in the same AAU program. So love being at the studio. Actually sat here and did an interview with him not wow. too long ago. So it's like full circle. And I'm on the other side. Speaking of circles, I'm getting the sense that like not only is Los Angeles, but you put Los Angeles, California, basketball. 
and it gets real small. Like yeah. it, it's a really small and super tight family. It seems like for the most part, I mean, everybody who's actually from general LA, then you get like Inland Empire, kind of other places, Pasadena. They don't really rock with us as much, but anybody in this kind of core LA circle kind of came up together, either playing at the Inglewood Wire, Crenshaw Wire, AAU Ball. Yeah. Like back when I was coming up, we only had a few AAU teams. AAU was kind of a new thing at that point, so everybody crossed paths in those circles, played against each other. It was either friends or frenemies or enemies or whatever. Maybe. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So what is what is your life like right now? Because um, you've been in the media space, it seems like, for a very long time, really yeah. over the past, like, what, 15 years at least or yeah. so? Yeah, going on like 17 now. Okay. Graduated college 2005 from UCLA, kind of knew pretty early on there that basketball probably wasn't going to be a long-term future goal, so just started Working in production after I graduated, started over at Fox Sports, then started working at NFL Network, bounced around, did a bunch of different stuff. So to be kind of doing the stuff I'm doing now, I would have never imagined. I remember it, I was at NFL, and they brought kind of the first social media person in, and we're all kind of looking like, you know, we didn't really know what the dude, the <laughs> dude did, but managed all the social accounts. I remember being in like a meeting in like 2010 for the draft, and then talking about Twitter, and Rich Eisen being like, yo, what's Twitter? Like, and then now just to see the way that... What's yeah. the Twitter? Yeah. <laughs> Because we're all like, yeah, we're doing promos for Twitter on the show, like tweets and whatever. I'm just like, it didn't really make sense to me. But now, you know, to know that I've carved out kind of a a life and a, a business kind of doing that stuff is cool. Well, you, you've really blown up, to say the least, on social media. I mean, over the past several years, what your followers have, have jumped all the way they've, from yeah. 20,000 to 250, almost 250,000, yeah. at least on Twitter. I'll run numbers yeah. up. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Having worked at ESPN and kind of sitting in and around like the Adam Schefters, the Darren Ravels, the Mark Steins of the world, they usually have like a couple phones and they're always on there. So what happened? Like what, what's going on while I'm talking to you? Do you get kind of nervous about like you know I'm not around my phone or is it easier because? You're centered around the NBA stuff, so you know there's not a game. I, I think I'm trying to lower my screen time. I'm like, it gets to the point. I'll tell somebody the story, but like my vision will start getting blurry from staring at the phone so much. And there's been numerous times where I've tweeted, like I had to like you know take a second because the vision's blurry. And I don't wow. even see the words that I'm typing, and kind of just got to hope and pray that I spell things correctly. Which, as you know, on social, that's kind of you know, but you know, if you don't spell things right, people are going to be in your mentions talking stuff and clowning and doing stuff like that. But yeah, I just yeah grind it out. Like it's a it's a it's a fun life. And like I said, who would have known I'd be here doing Twitter as a job, doing interviews with people yeah. like yourself, talking about, you know, me tweeting on the bird app, but the game it, is a game. It's such a fascinating, it's just a fascinating aspect of, I mean, I think you're probably like the first athlete that has assumed and, and become big through this role. I mean, we live in a completely different space now. Yeah. I mean, you and I didn't really grow up in an era of social media, thank God. Um, I, I would be in a lot of trouble if <laughs> Twitter and Instagram yeah. don't you would, ever think about be, that. I would, yeah, I, I see all the people that get clapped up and packed up for uh, stuff <laughs> that they put out, you know, five, ten years ago when they were 13, 14, I can only imagine. Yeah. You know, we lived in a different time where, like, Facebook was our social media and other platforms like that. But you had, like, for me, Facebook was great when it first started because it was kind of this cool thing that at all the college campuses. And you see the new campuses trickle in and, like, the new colleges and network and do that type of stuff. And then it, it kind of got cooked a little bit when you started getting, like, your aunts <laughs> and your grandma. And that type of people, you had to shift it up. You, can't, you couldn't communicate the way you wanted to back then. So I'm thankful that we didn't have social media the way that we have it now back then because I wouldn't be employed with some of the stuff I've probably said. Well, yeah, I mean, it, yes, I agree with you. Things started to change once you saw family members enter the picture on, on Facebook. But, you know, watching you with your, your pod, 
um, all the shows, New York Times has reached out to you, LA Times. What is that? What is it like just kind of getting that type of attention for what you're doing right now? Oh, it's cool. I mean, anytime you get profiled by like, you know, places like the New York Times, New York Post, The Athletic, LA Times, they're kind of a little bit late to the game. So I told, <laughs> Does that mean I'm late to the game no, now? No, you're good. But I told, I told Ben Boach, <laughs> me and Ben, who wrote the article, we had talked like a year ago. He's like, yo, I want to do something on you. I'm like, yo, you know, that sounds great. He got busy. Then I'm like, yo, how am I in all these New York papers? I'm an LA guy. You know, I was born on the East Coast, obviously, but lived in LA my whole life. Like, how am I in all these New York publications? And then finally, my hometown paper comes around. But he wrote a great article, so super excited. He actually sent me, like, once that article dropped, I think it was trending on Twitter for a couple of days, which was cool to see. But I gained, like, 16,000 followers in, like, a two-day window. Got the Genie Bus follow, got a Mark Cuban follow, got a Samuel <laughs> Jackson follow. So it was better late than never, and I appreciate kind of the results of what that interview did. Got some LeBron James responses, yeah. got the GOAT. I mean, it doesn't really get any better than that. No, what's that? Yeah, June 10th, uh, 2021. It's like a holiday for me, so damn. Wow. Wow. Oh, wow, it's almost a year. We're close to the, the year anniversary. I didn't even think about it, but just to see how much kind of the world has changed. Like people, I was doing a bunch of stuff even then. I'd already, you know, done a ton of stuff in the writing producing space, yeah. but kind of get that LeBron co-sign to kind of put everybody on notice. It's funny, like a lot of former bosses and people that, you know, didn't used to answer the phone or respond to emails. Now all of a sudden remembered I existed and would reach out and like tell me they wanted to do stuff. So I think it's cool for me, but just to have people like LeBron, people like Ava, John Legend, who I'm a humongous fan of, to know that they feel the same way about my content as I do about the stuff that they do is pretty cool thing to see. That's a pretty sick response. That's a that's a pretty sick list of celebrities there getting that response. I feel like and social media can can be so, so validating, but it can also and, and I think, you know, coming from the world of psychology, there's a lot of research still being done on on the positive and negative aspects of yeah. social media, you know, so they're kind of acting as like like a drug and I know that in a previous interview you kind of talked about it as if it is kind of like a drug. It is. So how do you how do you engage with it, and have you set any boundaries in terms of like how you experience yeah. well, it? Well, social, especially spot like Twitter, is super toxic. Uh, you know, I joke like you look at somebody like LeBron James, right? He can post. He posted a message about Brittany Griner and how you know we need to put more efforts into getting her free. You look at his mention, and it's you're a fraud. Your rings are fake. Like you know, screw you, whatever. So it's just a weird world where I feel like you know it, it's to me. I don't. I don't. I've gotten desensitized to it. You see enough of it. And this is the thing I encourage a lot of people, they get into social, because you start seeing that type of stuff and you take it personal. Like people can tweet from an account and you can get, you know, a million people telling you how much they love your stuff and how great you are. It's always going to be that one person that tells you you suck or they hate you or the death threats or the cancer wishes or any of that type of stuff. Yeah. That'll linger with you. But for me, like whenever those type of things happen, I always make a point just to kind of figure out who these people are, just in case they're serious about it. And then if they want to pull up and do something, and as you can see, I'm like six, seven, you know, solid 300 pounds. So not really afraid of any of these type of people, but... <laughs> For me, it's more kind of like a mental illness and a sickness on that side, too, on both sides, right? Because you get the cloud of nowadays kids kind of everything is predicated on how many likes or how many hearts or yeah. retweets or views things get to the point where they're, they're deleting stuff and reposting it, kind of chasing that fix. I have a different kind of experience with it. Like I, I go into social and I'm at a point now in my career where I'm comfortable with everything I do. But I know like I've had to like decrease the, the volume of tweets that I put up just because mm. I know if I'm not putting my best foot forward, then, you know, people are going to talk crazy to me or talk you know, talk shit or do whatever, whatever it may be. So I try to avoid all that type of stuff. But I, you know, I'm very keen and perceptive of all of the stuff that goes on in that space in the world. And it's more sad, too, because a lot of those times, like people will create like burner accounts or troll accounts yeah. for the very reason of just, just to talk shit and talk, say reckless stuff that they would never say in real life. And one thing I pride myself on, like you see anything come from my account is coming from me. 
everybody's like, oh, do you have a team? Do you have this? Like, no. Nah, so, you know, there might be times I'm sleeping, I miss something. Like, yeah, it just is what it is. I'll go on living life. Like, I'm not going to catch everything. But there's also anything that comes from my account, I'm tweeting, unless I obviously get hacked or something like that. But mm-hmm. anything that I'm saying, I'm putting my name on it. Where you deal in the world nowadays where a lot of these kids create accounts where they feel like tough saying whatever they want to that they would never say in, in the real world, in real life. So when we were coming up, it was a little bit different. If you had a problem with somebody, yeah. I couldn't create like a fake phone account and like, you know, maybe we'd prank call your house or some shit like that. But <laughs> you couldn't, you yeah. know, you had to like, you know, if I got a problem with you, I got to say that to your face. Yeah. Not like, I'm not going to mail you a letter like, ooh, you know, I hope you die or some shit like that. Like, this is what you deal with now every day. But I see the way that other people deal with it. So I'm kind of been prepared for it. And I, when I was younger, I used to live my life in a lot more petty way and be reckless and say kind of the same stuff that a lot of these kids say to me. So I understand that I just pray for them. And I actually really just appreciate it that they even recognize me. You know, people can only hate on things that they see, right? I'd rather, indifference is, is much more like of a, a sting to me than somebody hating. If they hate, I know that they're jealous and they're bitter, for whatever reason it may be, that they haven't been able to attain the same level of success. I know they've been trying to do it. And, you know, ultimately it's like, yo, what do you want me to do about it? Like, you know, I'm supposed to like quit these jobs and not, you know, kind of do the things that I'm doing. No, I'm, I'm going to keep riding it out and do what I'm doing. So... Haters have their job. I have my job. So it's kind of this ecosystem where I appreciate them for helping elevate me and keep me on my toes all the time. You you have a very grounded and almost uh, laid back approach. Yeah. And I know that's been maybe seemingly your personality, how people have described you, maybe former coaches or peers, just like super laid back. And, and humor is something that has kind of been connected with your name. Is that is that valid or yeah, true so, i mean the whole family even from my dad all the way up brothers sisters like we all have a great sense of humor like my dad's a big time prankster he was a all-american you silly all that type of stuff but he was a theater arts major so a lot of people don't know he was hosting tv shows and stuff on campus when he was in school always had a knack he was a great writer writing comedy and funny stuff and just to make the light of any situation like i, I remember uh, when we were little uh he was playing with the clippers ended up breaking his neck you know, doctors thought his career was done. He ended up researching it. Uh, we he played for the Warriors for a little bit, ended up getting cut. Then we moved to Italy. But we were in Italy and it was just, you know, it was me, my mom, uh, my older brother, Chris, uh, my dad and my younger brother, Josh, who was just born at that point. But you imagine like five black people going to Italy, like <laughs> in the late 80s, early 90s. Wow. Everywhere we went, we just get stared at. So we'd have we'd have fun with it. Like we'd walk in and huddle up and then like wave to everybody. And we'd walk into a <laughs> restaurant and stuff. And just kind of have a good time. I remember we had like the home movies and we would do like, we would go to all these like historical sites and we'd be doing like mixtapes and raps and all types of cool stuff. So always just really funny comedy was always just a big part of my older brother, Chris, probably one of the funniest people I know. So I got a lot of my shtick from him, you know, kind of just seeing him in locker rooms and stuff. And then just playing team settings, playing at a UCLA. You got a lot of, you know, dynamic human beings in there, funny people. They're trying to clown you. They're trying to, you know, whatever it may be, they're going, you know, from day to day. You walk in that locker room, you don't know what you're going to get. So you got to be able to hold your own, got to be able to crack jokes, you know, help diffuse the tension, help diffuse the time of, you know, playing a long basketball season with each other. I mean, listen, I was maybe not in a basketball locker room, but, yeah. which I recognize the culture of tennis and basketball is extremely different. You'd be surprised I get that. a lot of similarities, I imagine. But yeah, but like hanging out in the locker room and also being a member of the media, I, I don't. I don't have that sense of humor. And sometimes that humor doesn't. So I, I, my point is, is that it says a lot about your familial dynamics and yeah. how special it was and how you use humor in a healthy and positive way. Because humor can be used in obviously a more toxic and negative way. And it sounds like that was like your family setting. So it definitely started out when I first started, it was a lot more toxic, a lot more petty. But now as I've gotten to like know mm. these people, you get the LeBron James followers, Steph Curry or KD. 
and you understand these guys are human beings too. Like, you know, you look at KD and everybody busted KD out because he had a bunch of burner accounts. But the reality is he just wanted to feel normal. Like he goes into any conversation as Kevin Durant, that automatically becomes the focus of the conversation. Oh, Kevin Durant's responding to me. He just responded from a burner. You don't know who it is. He just wants to engage you and have a good conversation to kind of feel normal, which is a tough thing to do, obviously, when you're making hundreds of millions of dollars playing basketball mm. and a celebrity. So I try to find that balance. And I've been fortunate to live on both sides of that. Like when I first started doing the stuff in social media space, a lot of people didn't know who I was. You can look at the app. You can't really tell who it is. It's like a baby photo of me. So deliberately. <laughs> but uh, as I've gotten older and kind of started to meet these people and, and really kind of just in the wake of like the mental health situation that's gone on. And guys like Kevin Love, DeMar DeRozan making big pushes just to recognize that you start to realize, yo, these dudes are human beings, too. And no amount of money shields them from having feelings and being sensitive, just like anybody else would. So certain level of respect that I have now and the, the comedy and humor has definitely shifted where they used to be the butt of the jokes. And now I want them to be able to take part in. So if they're in the locker room. Somebody shows them a tweet that I put up or something like that. They can, you know, laugh along with us as opposed to feeling like they're being attacked. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It sounds like you're very comfortable with engaging with social media because it's truly authentic yeah. and it's, it's a true represent, re representation of who you are. And I think life experience, age, yeah. professional experience has probably led you to that point. It sounds like. Uh, well, I'm washed now. I'm like a 40 year old man. So <laughs> I approach social a lot differently. I look at a lot of these younger kids that this is all they've kind of known and they've grown up with and they seek that validation from social. Like I seek validation from, you know, my kids and my wife and my family and just, the things that are important to me, like I can separate the social media world from the real world. Sometimes those mm -hmm. two things conflate each other and, you know, get mixed together, but just, you know, not being too attached to it and also kind of looking at now, like this is my career, this is my profession, this is my brand. So everything I do have to be super strategic with, make sure I'm doing things that are appropriate and reflect me and my family in the best light. So again, it's a lot of growing up and it's funny, like, you know, people look at older people on social and I get it from the young kids now, oh, you're washed or this or that. It's like, yeah, I'm a lot of those things, but I'm also able to pay all my bills. I don't have any cares in the world. <laughs> yeah. I'm able to fly where I want to fly, travel how I want to travel, eat at the place I want to eat at. And I don't have crippling student loan debt like a lot of them are going to be dealing with. So oh, they man. get those jokes off and it's like, yeah, I'm old, but you're going to be here too at some point. You're going to have, you know, the next generation of kids calling you wash or whatever it may be. So I kind of take pride in that to be able to get to this point. And also, like, I'm still on their radar. So it's a good thing to see. You are, you're on a lot of people's radar. Yeah. I mentioned... Um, to one of my friends, he's a professional tennis coach, Mark Lucero, and he was like, oh, so who are you coming to LA to interview? I, said, I mentioned Baron Davis. I said, um, Josiah, uh, do you know him? Do you know him, Josiah Johnson? He goes, the king of Twitter? <laughs> and that was like the, that was the response. So that kind of shows you, you know, where you are in, um, on people's radar. You mentioned being strategic. So there's two parts of this, but I feel like everybody wants to know your, your strategy and your approach to this. And I know much of it is influenced from your, your trajectory and professional experience at Comedy Central and all this stuff. But can you explain to people what your process is? Because you're so quick. Yeah. It's, for me, it takes me like two days to figure out something good. And then by then, obviously, it's gone. So what's your process? So first thing is I'm a grandpa, so I still have cable. So a lot of people have <laughs> cut cords and they watch streaming, but streaming is like a minute behind. So I'll, I'll be watching the live game feed, which is like seven second delay of tape, whatever or a seven second delay from, you know, when they broadcast it when it gets to your home. But they'll be a minute, two minutes behind. So they'll I'll tweet about things like, man, are you, you, how can you see the future? It's like, no, nah, I just literally have traditional cable chief. Like, <laughs> I'm not watching it on a stream where, you know, they're, they're several minutes behind. But uh, growing up, I used to listen to a lot of Sugar Free. And Sugar Free, you know, he said, if you stay ready, you ain't got to get ready. So I try and stay ready 
with whatever's going on, being topical, just being plugged in, spending a lot of time, you mentioned earlier with the screen time, like a lot of time, and this is something like my wife will get mad at me. You're always on your phone. It's like, yeah, I'm always searching for something. I don't know what I'm looking for until I see it. Hmm. I don't wake up like, you know, you never know what's trending from day to day. Like yeah. in, in recent times, Quinn Snyder just quit as a jazz coach or, you know, whatever it may be. Uh, J. Cole's playing in the Canadian League. Whatever whatever those things are, Elon Musk threatened to not buy Twitter. Like these are things that as you're scrolling the timeline, you don't know what you're looking for. But then you see those things like, oh, this is going to be something great to to talk about. Things that I'm interested in. But I don't ever really know what I'm looking for until I find it. So mm-hmm. that takes a lot of time scrolling, a lot of times going through. And Twitter, for my money, Twitter, you know, has a lot of toxic components, but it's also great in terms of news gathering. Like, you know, we both work in production. You know, when I was young getting into the game, we, we uh, back in the old days, they, they used to do everything tape to tape, right? So yeah. you got to go find your tapes, cue them up, like cut them, and then you put your clips together. We had a more seamless uh, digital infrastructure. So we could do like 30, 40, 50 times the amount of work that our, our previous, you know, people could do in, in their same game. That's kind of the same thing with Twitter now. You get so much information. Back in the day, we had to wait for local news. You had to wait for a newspaper. You weren't yeah. reading that paper cover to cover. Now you get all that information on Twitter within a matter of 10, 15 minutes. You can know about, you know, it's crazy like that, that you've all these school shooting. Literally, you know, I saw that come through like two or three minutes after, you know, it went through on the scanners. Mm. You're seeing those tweets and that information and kind of keeping up in real time is news. You get to see how a lot of misinformation gets spread, but also just how news works. Like you're finding out information, details, all that type of stuff that comes in. And this is with, with everything that goes on in life. So really just being being in tune and aware, right? Like even when we're doing this interview now, yeah, I'm a little like fidgety because like, damn, what am I missing right now? I could pick up that phone Seriously. and LeBron could say he's retiring or whatever. So I'm, I'm able to do a lot of the stuff I do just by being aware and being cognizant. So when those things happen, I'm, I'm getting stuff up within a minute to two minutes of that news breaking. Mm-hmm. And what I have a lot of now is people tell me like my memes will, will break the news to them. They won't even see the official news story. Yes. But they'll see my meme hit the TL. I'm like, oh, this person just got traded or this person just did this or whatever, whatever. Yeah. And they find out stuff like that. So I think it's cool <laughs> for me to kind of now elevate and transform even the way that we gather news. Because a lot of people aren't seeking out that news, but they might see a funny meme that I put out and they'll learn the news through that. So a lot of stuff is based on what's going on in reality and kind of my own spin and interpretation of how somebody involved with it may respond to it or whatever it may be. But and like I said, I'm blessed to be 40 years old. So I have a just an arsenal and a library of amazing clips and moments. Like when we were growing up, you know, you saw a funny movie, funny TV show. Like I used to show like The Simpsons, right? Everybody had to watch The Simpsons back in the day or in a living color. Because if you went to school that next day or Monday, didn't, didn't you know, know what the latest stuff was, you know, whatever, Fire Marshal Bill or you know, whatever Damon Wayans was doing with Homie the Clown, that type of stuff. If you didn't know it, you, you was FOMO. You were left out and you mm-hmm. weren't really going, you know, unless you recorded it, you know, back in those days, that was Artivo. You put the tape in and record, which everybody wasn't doing. You missed it and you had to wait for a rerun to see it again. Where now we're all, you know, the, the cool thing about social media, which a lot of people don't grasp, is it's social, right? Everybody mm-hmm. says social media, but they're not social with it. Like a lot of people are anti-social media, right? So when things happen, be social, like those people are talking about. So if we're watching the NBA Finals game or a Super Bowl or whatever moments, something crazy happens, that's what everybody's seen. Now they're talking about it. Everybody's giving their takes and opinions on. So there's a huge amount of people that have already seen it and are aware of it. So that's the kind of stuff that I focus on. Mm-hmm. So I don't like to give too much away for free because I know there's people out there who are instructing the whole social teams, oh, listen to what he said and do it. They really are. But you have to actually do it to do it. And right. there are just certain things you won't be able to avoid. Like until you've been packed up, until you've been ratioed, until you've been quote unquote canceled, whatever that means, you know, 
it's like every day, you know, I say somebody's a star of Twitter, right? And you don't want to be this for a good reason or a bad reason. You don't want to be the star for a bad reason. You tweet some some take, whether it's, hey, I, I wait five minutes to grab my bread at, at, at Olive Garden or whatever it is. <laughs> People are going to respond to that. And a lot of these people are waiting to see which way the wind blows to determine how they're going to respond. A lot of yeah. people don't necessarily feel a way about something until they see, oh, everybody else is mad at this. I'm going to be mad at it, too. But mm -hmm. if you just gave it to them on the surface, like, what do you feel about this? A lot of times, like, oh, I don't know. But especially on Twitter social, you can now read all the quote tweets in the comments. And oh, I'm going to jump on this guy, too. So everybody sees the stuff that I'm doing now. But it's been a benefit of a lot of trial and error. Like a lot of times when I was putting up content that maybe wasn't the best. Mm -hmm. And people will let you know about it. I'm thankful now we have the quote tweet feature where you can see all the quote tweets. Back in the old days, you couldn't see that you would just see it kind of filter in your timeline. Yeah. And you kind of just got like a, a raw read on whether this was getting a positive reaction, negative. But I go back and look at some of the stuff now from like 2018, 2019. It's like, damn, I was really getting packed up. And it's funny, some of those same people that were packing me up now ask me for jobs or for advice or to come wow. do their thing or this, that, or whatever. So I kind of always laugh. I never take any of it personal. I think that's one thing, too, just having thick skin. Where, you know, because back in my petty days, it'd be like, nah, remember you tweeted this shit at me four years ago? Like, I'm not doing anything for you. Like, mm -hmm. But I just keep that on my back burner now when I deal with a lot of these people and just know, like, you know, one thing, good or bad, shouldn't ruin a relationship with somebody. Like, mm -hmm. I, I, do, I deal with NBA Twitter a lot. I'm a LeBron fan. There's a lot of MJ fans, Kobe fans, whatever it may be. Back in the old days, you literally want to fight somebody. Like, literally, we almost had fights in Temecula as a result of people disagreeing about basketball. So I'm going to fight somebody over a basketball take. We might have so much other stuff in common. It just doesn't make sense to me. So mm -hmm. I try to take social for what it is, but I'll even now pull people to the side. I'll see them getting into it, and I'll know about these people. But like, yo, you guys would be friends if, you know, if not for your, you like the Warriors, this person likes the Lakers. And yeah. you, you're basing everything off of that one little experience like you guys would have so much more in common and be friends like don't let you know one little thing you're going to agree on kind of mm -hmm. now create this whole thing we guys want to fight each other or, or beef with each other over you know well he yeah. said steph wasn't the goat like so what like shit yeah. <laughs> yeah i'm so interested about the path that you have taken to get to where you are now the josiah that is seemingly very humble and grounded. Maybe you've always been laid back. Maybe you've always like engaged with humor, but you also seem to be very quick-witted. Yeah. Like to be to do what you do, you have to be very quick. You have to have an opinion, and you have to be able to make a lot of associations and connections. It's almost like what a comedian does. But before we, I'm gonna like try to piece all this stuff together. But I'm curious about your transition from basketball, because that was a huge part of your childhood and your familial legacy and tradition and all that other stuff. So so going back to your, where did basketball start? What's your first memory? Uh, basketball for me, I think I was probably three or four. Uh, first vivid memory, my dad played in an all-star game in Dallas. Went to pick him up from the airport, and this is back in the old days, LAX, you can mash right up to the gate. like. <laughs> You know, back in the people don't remember those days, but yeah, you could literally roll up to the gate, like Good no days. issues. Yeah. You didn't need a ticket or any of that other no. stuff. But he had a, uh, he bought like a Nerf hoop. So we, we pick him up. He's got this big ass Nerf hoop, set it up. Me and my older brother, Chris, we would play games in our den. I remember we had this little Nerf ball. It's like a foam ball, but like there would start to be little holes and chunks would start to, because you use it so much. And basically just got to the point where we had to like rip it in half and throw it away. But we literally, you know, the ball would just had all types of holes and dents and divots in it because we used it so much. But that was kind of my first foray. And we would, we would, my, me and my older brother would play games against each other. We'd have jerseys and we'd be different players based on kind of whoever were the, the, the top players at that point. <laughs> and we would just be going back and forth and eventually it expanded to obviously actual basketball games. I remember playing at like 
Barrington Park as a kid. My dad coached me in different stuff. Uh, Pan Pacific Park, all over. Just, you know, Inglewood Y was where it first really blossomed. Hmm. This was pre-AAU. So Inglewood's, you know, a place like Baron Davis, Paul Pierce, everybody pretty much came through there. And those guys were older than me. I had a tremendous amount of respect for them. But you start playing there, kind of learning the ropes. And then from there, I started playing AAU with a team called the 4D Stars. That was my first uh, AAU experience. And we were like the best team in the region. Hmm. Uh, I think 10 and under, 11 under, whatever it was. We had this kid, Andrews on, who was like 6'4", was like a 12-year-old that literally, he was like, he was like our shack back then. Just crazy. Like, I still look at him like he's this giant, but we're like the same height now. <laughs> but I was like, you know, this little short, pudgy kid is like a 10, 11-year-old. He was like, you know, built well, like How tall little, were you at 10 or 11? Like four something, maybe five feet. Something wow. Like, yeah, something, not nothing. Like, I was like a 5'7 freshman in high school. Wow. And how tall are you now? 6'7". Uh, so when did you when did you experience your growth spurt? Uh, between like freshman to sophomore year, I went from like five seven to like six one, and then sophomore to junior year went like six one to like six six. So. So you grew like a foot or so in two years. So I was at Crenshaw as a freshman, five seven, like one eighty. I remember my dad made me like trial for varsity, which was embarrassing. At that point, everybody <laughs> on the team was like six three or bigger. I'm like this five seven pudgy kid could shoot, could do all that type of stuff. And even being at Crossroads with Barron, I remember the coach there didn't want to give me a scholarship uh, for high school. At Crossroads. Yeah, Crossroads. Mm -hmm. Coach Roper still respect him to this day, but he's like, yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's undersized. We can't take that risk right now. And then fast forward, you know, I'm giving him 30 pieces as like a six, seven, you know, junior, senior, but. Miss a shot. Yeah, it's all gravy. <laughs> he's a good dude. I don't blame him. Uh, so what, so you, your memories, unlike other people who, you know, might've picked it up when they're, sounds like you picked it up very young, yeah. but you had the influence of your dad and kind of like watching him, yeah. you know, watching him go through it and play, of course, you know, his, his legacy at UCLA and playing during the wooden era and, and all that jazz and spending many years over a decade in the NBA. So at what point did you realize that, Hey, my dad's not just like a normal dad or or maybe he's he's this really good basketball player at what point did you start realizing i mean as a kid i think anywhere we went like i remember going to like ucla basketball camps as a kid my brother was playing on the team there but getting like preferential treatment all the other kids had to like sit on the court they let me sit in like the bleachers like in a nice like comfortable chair but you know everywhere i went i was never josiah i was i was either uh marcus's son or little chris who's my older brother like mm -hmm. never had a name for for most of my life which is funny now because people yeah. see my dad and be like, oh, you're Josiah's dad. And it's not like, you're not like the five-time all-star, all those things you just listed. Like, oh, you're, you're, you're King Josiah's dad. And so it's a funny thing to see that kind of flip and reversal. But it's really just kind of carving my own lane. But I, I joke, if you grew up in Los Angeles and your last name's Johnson, you're playing basketball. Like, every one of my brothers uh, played at college, you know, got scholarships to play at the college level. I got a younger sister now, Shiloh, who's going to be a beach, probably be the best one of the crew. Like she'll be in the WNBA uh, in the next five to 10 years. But just being around everywhere we went, just the amount of people that would come up with to him, the love that he got, you know, like if those who watched The Last Dance uh, back in 2020, you got Michael Jordan with his, his poster, my dad's poster on his wall, saying how much he loves my pops. My dad was with Adidas at that point. MJ wanted to go to Adidas. Wow. Because, you know, he loved my dad and he loved the Lakers and Kareem. And like all those guys were Adidas guys at that point. But Yes, to see the love that people have from even still to this day. It's fun. A lot of people, like you mentioned all the, the basketball accolades, but now everybody remembers them from White Man Can't Jump and Robin the Liquor Store, and that's kind of, in his later life, been been the thing that everybody recognized him for. But, yeah, basketball was just, it was a part of our life. It was tough, too, kind of trying to live up to 
the pressure of being as good as he is. And, and each one of the brothers kind of had to deal with that in their own way. My older brother, Chris, who at this point is probably the best one of the crew, played overseas, played professionally, but can never really break into the league. But we all kind of had to deal with that different, you know, I would say trauma of trying to live up to what the next one did. So Chris went to UCLA. I went to UCLA. I had another brother, Josh, who played at Western Oregon. Uh, my brother, Mo, played at Tuskegee. Younger brother, uh, Cyrus, who was at Sam Houston State, who's now uh, at Cal State LA. But everywhere you go, you're Marcus Johnson. So no matter what you do, that's how people look at you. And that's how people judge you for it. So it's definitely, you know, I would never like, you know, I look at like Michael Jordan's kids and I can only imagine, you know, the stuff I dealt with, they dealt with probably times a, a thousand, right? But ultimately it's a tough thing, but you become your own man, you deal with it in your own ways. And, and ultimately it makes you tougher as you go on in life. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's an interesting dynamic. You know, there's been a few athletes that I've talked to where their their mom or their dad <clears throat> kind of laid the ground for their path as as athletes. You know, I, I just recently interviewed Mike Golick Jr., of course, you know, his dad yeah. and his uncles, all Notre Dame, NFL, all this other stuff. And, you know, I, um, one name that comes to mind, Nolan Smith, who's now over at Louisville, but he talked about his dad who played in the NBA won a championship. His dad passed when he was eight years old, but yeah. he he decided not to go to Louisville, which is where his dad went, because the shadow and the reminder of his father was so intense that he had to go someplace else. He That's decided true. to go to Duke. And so that kind of tells me about like the intensity of having the opportunity to have somebody like that as your parent and your role model, but also you know, you kind of mentioned you, you threw the word traumatic, but the, I don't know what the word would be, intensity of sometimes living in the shadow of a parent like that and trying to create your own identity in space. And so I'm just curious, like you mentioned, everybody had their own path. So what did, first of all, like, what did that look like for you as a kid? It's crazy before that, like, uh, so Nolan's dad and my dad played on the Clippers together. So wow. my dad's got some okay, great stories well, about Derek, yeah, Derek wow. and his heyday and you know th yeah. those times with donald sterling everybody who's seen the, the lakers show winning time the clippers were more losing time but i think you know it's just it's a it's a situation you just navigate there's not really a playbook for it or, or blueprint to, to how to deal with it but you deal with it in your own ways like there's definitely been points where it gets a little it's, it's tough you know he, he went to ucla his jersey's hanging in the rafters and now that i look back on it probably wasn't the best decision to go there because you're never really going to be able to live up to that shadow. So no matter what you do, it's not going to be good enough, especially at a place like UCLA where he was on John Wooden's last national championship team. You've got fans that have been season ticket holders 30, 40 years. So, you know, if you don't win national championships at UCLA, they don't care about conference championships or sweet 16s or, you know, there's some schools that don't hang banners for those type of things. Like you're not going to see a, a sweet 16 banner anywhere at UCLA. That's just not how they get down, right? It's championship or bust. So kind of living in that world, the most prestigious basketball school on the planet, no disrespect to Duke or Kentucky or any of these other spots. We got 11 natties. They don't. So game is the game. Like, you know, go argue with somebody else about it. But living in that world, being in L.A., you know, Showtime Lakers, just a superstardom that comes with L.A. Like everything is a big deal. It's larger than life. So it's a lot more traumatic, a lot more stressful. As I look back on it, me and my dad kind of joke about it now because he'll be like, we'll talk about the UCLA days. And he'll oh, you know, you should have did this, should have played more. I thought, you know, I'm just like, look, man, I'm, I'm happy with the career that I was able to carve out. I kind of realized I was okay. I'm not going to say I sucked, but I wasn't as good as some of the guys I was playing with. I played with like 15 guys and went on to play in the NBA. Mm. But now I've gone pro and something else. So, you know, I'm still competitive as ever. So all that stuff they did is awesome. Now, you know, they're looking at the stuff that I'm doing. And it's like, okay, yeah. you know, 
they got to go pro doing that. I went pro. You know, I'm the only guy from the, that team, me and my teammate Quinn Hawking, to create a TV show and do those type of things and be an NAACP Image Award winner and stuff like that. So as much as they, you know, they, all, all the basketball accolades, all that's great, but life is more than basketball too. And that's yeah. so my dad kind of stressed to us early on. He never really... He wanted us to follow that path, but he also understood the immense pressure that we were all under. But he also fostered other other elements of our brains too. Like you don't need, just need to be a basketball player. So I was taking like you know film classes as like a third, fourth grader with Jason wow. Schwartzman, and we went to the school called UES together on UCLA's campus. So doing other stuff creatively that was fulfilling as well, and that's where I kind of knew once basketball was over, the space that I wanted to get into was going to be a lot more creative stuff. Didn't know what you know. Now it's kind of gravitated towards social, but writing tv film producing all that type of stuff that's kind of the world i grew up in so i'm going to school with kids whose you know parents are yeah actors and directors and all that type of stuff like my mom was uh so my dad's teammate with the clippers norm nixon norm's married to debbie allen debbie you know the stuff she was doing even as a kid just seeing like this this amazing black woman who's literally like you know directing episodes of a different world and mm-hmm. We'd go to the the screening. My mom was an extra, like, for years on that show. So I would spend a ton of time. I went to school with uh, Debbie and Norm's kids, Pump and Vivian. So literally, we get picked up from school, carpool. We get drived out to uh, the studio to go watch, you know, episodes of A Different World get taped. So, you know, I have a different experience kind of with entertainment than a lot of people. And I look back, I'm so blessed and fortunate to have where I got to walk around those sets and just be around as stuff was going on. Like, you, you watch A Different World. I don't know how familiar you are with the show, but there's... Famous episode, the wedding episode, right, where, you know, Dwayne Wayne comes through and, you know, she's about to marry the senator and he comes in and, and said, so I, I'm literally on set for all that, for the rehearsals, for all that. So I know what's going to happen weeks before the episode airs, because literally, if you go watch that episode, my mom's in it, my dad's in it, a bunch of former UCLA players are in it, like wow. Mike Warren is the the reverend in it, he played at UCLA uh, in like the, the 60s, and it's just like, these are were just normal things like just going mm-hmm. and sitting on set all day or white man can't jump just you know being around reading lines with my dad and helping him you know practice and getting character or seeing him walk around the houses raymond you know he was a method actor so he literally didn't shave and like he was that character for a good six months around the crib and it's just like this is this is the stuff we do or just reading scripts that he would get in for various stuff that that he was on so i was immersed in that world very early on so I knew i wanted to do something in that space but just didn't know what it was going to be Wow, that is so fascinating, really unique. I, I feel like Los Angeles or New York City yeah. is, are two cities where most children would not have that type of exposure yeah. to entertainment and media. So it makes a little bit more sense now. I'm starting to see the, like, the layers yeah. of what has led you to become King Josiah 54 today because you've had all that exposure of creativity, entertainment, media. But going back to your college decision... So does that does that mean that what other universities or programs were you looking at? Uh, so I was I was super smart. I was like a national honor society in high school. So I was thinking like uh, Ivy League would be the way I would go. So uh, like Brown was recruiting me. Right. Uh, was looking at Boston University. They were recruiting me kind of heavy. Uh, Xavier in Ohio. So Skip Prosser, who was uh, CP3's coach at Wake Forest, he he passed away. Uh, a while ago, but he was recruiting me when he was at Xavier. And I was kind of looking at uh, Austin Crozier was a guy who I was a fan of. He went to Crossroads. I think he played with Barron when he was there. Went to Crossroads, ended up going to Providence. So Crossroads, super small school. Mm-hmm. But, you know, people see BD now, the people that have come out there. But, you know, it wasn't, they didn't have a lot of NBA pedigree at that point. 
but Austin went to Providence, worked on his game, and ended up carving out a nice career for himself in the NBA. So I was like, I can go to somewhere like Xavier that's in the cut, Ohio. I don't know anybody there, literally. <laughs> you know, I'll just be away from everybody, just concentrate on basketball and be able to do something similar. But once UCLA came calling, you know, I, I spent my whole, I went to elementary school there, spent, spent a ton of my life there. I was a ball boy uh, for my brother's teams when he was there. So I was a ball boy in the 95 championship team. Got to, you know, hang out with them out in Seattle when they won the championship. Literally slept in my brother's hotel room the night they won the national championship with like 10 other random human beings. Just wow. wasn't a lot of sleep going on. They were out partying all night. But like flying back with that team as they came back to L.A. And just being a part of all that stuff. Like, yo, this is this is what I've always dreamed of. So this is what I want to do. It's probably a little too lofty in terms of, of, of doing it. But it was like, yo, once they came, Coach Lab came with the scholarship offer. Like, I wasn't going to say no. Yeah, because it's so deeply entrenched in your childhood, who you are, your family. And so it was probably hard to untangle that. So does that mean if you were speaking to the 17-year-old Josiah yeah. and you had a conversation and you wanted to go to UCLA, what what do you think you would say to so him yeah, now? Life's worked out pretty good now, so go ahead and do what you're going to do. <laughs> but, you know, work a little harder. So you wouldn't have made a different decision maybe? No, I mean, because I don't know. I mean, I'm very happy with where my life has ended up. Uh, I've got a great family doing a lot of cool shit. So I wouldn't want to look back and change that and not be doing cool stuff. Like, yeah, could have went to Brown and, you know, been whatever, an investment banker or whatever. I'd have been doing working on Wall Street, miserable, who knows, you know, 20 hour <laughs> days. Like, I get to tweet for a living. Like, I, you know, I, I wouldn't change that for anything. So I'm not the type like, yeah, there's probably some things I would have changed about that. But all in all, I'd say it worked out very well. So at what point did you think about um, life after basketball? Or did you yeah. When, at what point did you start thinking about life after basketball? Probably like my sophomore year of college. So freshman year, broke my foot, red shirt. Uh, red shirt, freshman year, didn't play that much. But going into my red shirt sophomore year, I went to uh, Pete Newell's big man camp uh, out in Hawaii. It was like the last year they did in Hawaii. Rick Carlisle, who's the coach of the Pacers, was my coach there. And I remember I was just killing. I, was, I had a bunch of guys from like Michigan State and Kyle, other, 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 some of the top big men in the country. And I was playing well, went into UCLA that year thinking I was going to, you know, be able to carve out some good minutes for myself. Didn't really work out. So I think at that point, kind of writing was on the wall, realized like, yo, I could I could have went and played overseas and kind of I saw the way that my brother had done that. And he's a lot more I'm an introvert, so I don't like being in like, you know, places. Where I'm not I'm not just going to be really like outgoing and trying to meet people and stuff like that. I'm just as comfortable, like chilling by myself, being a hermit. But I saw the way he played in like Lebanon and in Qatar and Russia and all these spots. And it was cool, but it was also tough not seeing him for seven months out of the year. And this, you know, we're only communicating via email. And he's, you know, come back with all these great stories of the stuff he did out there. But then he'd have to go right back out there. He'd always be around in the summertime. We'd work out. Then he was off to kind of his next, mm -hmm. you know, journey. And I'm just like, yeah, I don't really get down like that. I remember kind of living in Italy with my dad. And I enjoyed that experience because the whole family was there. But it's like, I'm not going to sit in a a room by myself. And I had a lot of friends that went and did that. And, you know, it was just tough. Like, you know, they'd, they'd be alone on Christmas or holidays or whatever. They're stuck in some foreign country, chilling in there. You know, it's a nice apartment or whatever, but nobody else was around with them. You know, barely any people that speak the language that you speak. It's, 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 it was a tough route to go. So I knew that was probably wasn't going to be the life that I wanted to do. Hmm. So I just got into the entertainment industry uh, super early on the sports entertainment side and kind of just carved out a lane doing that stuff. Yeah, so it sounds like you made your decision because you had seen what that lifestyle was like. And it wasn't necessarily that you didn't want to play basketball, but yeah. it was also like, 
I'm not really down for this life. And that, I think that's an important distinction to make because I think fans sometimes think about playing sports at the professional level as just playing sports, but they don't realize the, the lifestyle that comes with it. Yeah. And the things that come with the business side of it, whether it's traveling or the fame or the money or the content, all these other things. And if you are not going to fit well with that lifestyle, yeah. it's not going to be enjoyable. It's going to be miserable. Yeah, for sure. So you, it sounds like you made that decision off I mean, of you know, my brother would tell me stories. He'd be in countries and they would just stop paying you. And you'd have wow. to really just wait because if you go back home, you're not getting your check. So you have to hold down. It's now like, uh, but these are just things that would go on. And I'm like, yo... Nah, like my, he wow. was literally in Lebanon, I think when they, they, they assassinated the former prime minister or, or made an assassination attempt. So he was like five minutes away, big bomb explosion, like all this crazy stuff. And he came back with all the video. He was super like, you know, he, he got his, everybody in my family, like, you know, we're, we're big in entertainment. So we get the cameras, we'll go shoot content, we'll do whatever. But he was filming all this stuff and his experiences. He came back and showed us all the footage. And it was like remarkable stuff. But it was also like, man, this is just, you know, this is not wow. something I'd rather be in LA, like, you know, chilling mm-hmm. out here. So basically got to see a lot of that and that kind of helped inform my decision and also just got the opportunity to work uh, with Fox Sports and NFL Network out of college. So it was like, all right, this is the lane I'm going to carve. It was a little tough kind of being a PA and, you know, being the low person on the totem pole, especially going, you know, from the glitz and glamour, you know, you're a college athlete, you know, when you walk around campus with a sweatsuit and the backpack. There's just, uh, you know, in class, whatever, you just, you know, you're one of those four or 500 people that are a student athlete at the school. It's a small, tight-knit community. Everybody knows each other. You know you're hanging out with future Olympians, future, you know, NBA All-Stars, yeah. Hall of Famers, whatever it may be, to now go to being, like, the low person on the totem pole, go get some coffee, like, you know, you're going to eat a bunch of shit for, for years and years just from everybody above you, mm-hmm. and then eventually, you know, you get to carve out your own land. You're bringing back... <laughs> good and bad memories of right. my PA experience. <laughs> You're right, though. It is, it, it is, I don't know if this was for you, but it was for me, this pride swallowing experience. Yeah. Because it's, you know, you go through life having dedicated yourself to sport. And you're right, you know, even at the D1 level and walking around UCLA or Duke or whatever it is, the gear, there's something about just wearing that athletic gear. It gives you identity, purpose, status, yeah. prestige, especially in America. Like sports is, you know, so big. And then all of a sudden, you know, three months later, I was, I knew I was going to retire, but I didn't really know, like, I was retiring. I didn't say goodbye. You just kind of go through this thing of like, okay, now I'm doing this and now I'm making $8 an hour and I'm just this normal human being. Yeah, you don't get like the press conference where like, yo, you know, no. it's been a great run. It's just like, peace. Like, I remember watching the draft. I graduated in 05 and kind of just watching the NBA draft. No, I'm not going to get drafted, but that was kind of like the finality of it. Like, all right, it's over. Like, figure it out. But, yeah, you don't. You just kind of transition in that world. For me, it was super depressing after school ended. Like, I remember after my senior year, you know, we, we lost in the tournament. I didn't start working until maybe, like, October-ish, but it was just like mm-hmm. a seven months of just like, yo, what am I going to do with my life? Again, I went from you know, getting all this free stuff and showered with all this this love and adoration for being a UCLA basketball player to like, yo, now I'm just a, a regular average human being. Nothing wrong with that, right? But yeah. nothing from a mental standpoint, like, you know, having to turn in the backpack, having to, you know, yeah. hang it up, hang up the sweatsuits. I can't walk around with these UCLA basketball sweatsuits anymore. Just, but that that's just a part of the game. And I think that's part of the growth process. When you do start working again, I think I was making like 10 bucks an hour at, at Fox Sports. And like seeing those checks come in. I was in. making $8 an hour. Yeah, that's about like, 
<laughs> like, damn, I just did all this work this week, and it's like this check for like two hundred bucks. Like, but also feeling like oh, I'm actually doing something and being yeah. a productive member of society was a cool thing too. But all the places I was at too it was tough being at somewhere like an NFL Network, where like I played with Mercedes Lewis, uh, who's, who's obviously a big time football star, playing with the Packers and, and the Jaguars and much other teams. He played basketball with us, or guys like Maurice Jones Drew, who were my friends in college. And now we, we all went from being like broke college students and them having like multi-million dollar contracts and I'm making $10 an hour. It's like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to the club, like buying that $15 drink really like leaves a dent in my bank account. <laughs> and, you know, the accounts on E a lot and where it's like, you know, un- overdrawn or whatever it may be. But those things also, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't change them. I look back and just how special those moments are. But it's funny, like, you know, when you, when you started at ESPN or NFL Network, whatever, like those people that you start with, you know, you don't even realize that then they're going to go on to do so much amazing stuff. So yeah. I'm so thankful, like, of the people that I've built relationships with. And now as a 40-year-old, they're, you know, running studios and coordinating producers and doing all this cool stuff. And we all just remember, like, you know, those old school days sitting in, like, uh, we used to have these, like, uh, like, NFL Network when it first started. It was, like, super janky. We had these, like, bungalows or whatever. We would log our games in and highlights <laughs> and running shot sheets and doing all that type of stuff to go now and like everybody's wearing suits and buttoned up and balling. Yeah. I'm thankful I still get to wear, you know, <laughs> leisurely outfits everywhere I go. But just seeing all those people and remembering those days to now fast forward where we all are now is pretty cool. Uh, you know, I I created this this show because clearly my my personal experience of transitioning away from sport was so so intense, emotionally heavy, difficult. And, you know, I just wanted to create space for other athletes to, to really talk about this because I think a lot of people just kind of think, oh, well, athletes, you have all these amazing skills that are so transferable to the workspace. It would make sense that that transition would be so quick, but there's a lot of other stuff that goes along with this experience. And so I'm curious about what yours was because when I ended my career, I didn't realize this until 10 years later because I just didn't have the the maturity to process it. But in, I eventually realized that, you know, with sports, there's a familial sacrifice. There's a lot of time and energy and identity and like talking about it. And like sometimes family centers so much around sport. And I think the thing that I really struggled with was because my mom moved to Florida when I was 12 to go to the tennis academy. My dad stayed back to continue working, supporting uh, the family, including my brother. And I think the thing that I really struggled with was like just ending after college and being like, that's it. Was that enough for me? Was that enough for my family? Was that enough for my my parents? And I didn't have that conversation until 10. You know, I even talk about now, 41 years old with my with my parents about like the sacrifice and like, did we go about the right way? So I'm curious about with you, have you had those conversations with your parents or your dad or your family about what leaving basketball was and was it okay for you to leave at that time? Did, did you feel comfortable? Yeah, I think, I mean, look, at the end of the day, one of the things I'm, I, I love my parents for is they let us each carve our own lane and be our own person. So I'm sure my dad was a little bit hurt that, you know, I didn't go on to have this, this great pro career, but also I got a college scholarship, which in any parent who has, you know, their kid get the college cover and they don't have to pay that hundred, 200 grand, whatever that number is like left with, Minimal student loans. Mm-hmm. The only student loans I had, I took a loan to go to like Cabo for my senior trip. That was like, but that was the bulk of my student loans. Like, so didn't didn't have any student loans left. Like, so I think, and then to see see the kids be a productive member of society. So, 
got a good job, rose up the rose up the ladder. And he was doing cool stuff. Like even, you know, you're a PA at, at NFL Network or ESPN, wherever, there's still a level of prestige and status that comes with it. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're working at a network. Like, oh, you know, Josiah's a producer over at, at NFL Network. No, not really. Production assistant, there's, you know, there's some producing involved in that, but you you still kind of feel that same level of coolness in terms of just being able to do something and, and, and go on and, and further your career and kind of carve your own path in your own lane. But it's definitely a tough thing, but I'm super appreciative of it. And I'm sure you kind of w- would probably agree that when you come from a team background or you played a sport, it makes you a lot more desirable to employers, especially as a mm. college athlete, because you understand how to thrive in a team setting. You understand what your role may be and, and how to go about and operate in that. And also you're just used to, you know, working in a team environment and being around a lot of people. Right. So these are things that you can't really teach. So it's funny. I, I'm at NFL Network, working with a lot of kids that went to Syracuse, went to Northwestern. Oh, we had these great broadcast journalism departments and I did this and I hosted my college show, whatever. And it's like we all get thrown in the fire and it's like, you know, you know, it's all hands on deck. In NFL, something crazy may happen. Ben Roethlisberger in a motorcycle accident or yeah. T.O., you know, goes to the hospital for whatever situation he's got. And it's like none of that shit matters anymore. Like that, you know, you ain't opening the textbook now, Chief. Like we all got to go and you got to figure out how to solve these puzzles, how to, you know, do whatever you're supposed to do, how to man this ship to, to get where you need to get to. So. It was cool for me and also inspiring. I was like a history major in college. So everybody was just like, what you going to do? Be a, be a, be a lawyer or are you going to be a history teacher? Like, I don't know. I just I was always just fascinated by history. But to now be able to do stuff on the entertainment side, where, again, I'm, I'm working with a bunch of these people who have all these more, more experience and more accolades, I guess, coming into the job, but going head-to-head with them, competing, and a lot of times outperforming them, you know, in situations. So it's like, yeah, once we all got there, none of that stuff really mattered. Like, And that's yeah. kind of the same thing for life. This is... Some, you know, we're, we're here at Barron's studio, but I think about like a Barron at Crossroads, right? Barron came from, you know, underprivileged situation, which he's, he's been more than been open about. But he was competing just as, as well as, as those kids at Crossroads who came from, you know, millionaire families and all this other type of stuff because he was just smart. And that's kind of the same thing I say. It's like I went to I went from Crossroads in, in junior high school to literally Crenshaw High School. So completely different worlds. But mm-hmm. those kids at Crenshaw were just as intelligent, just as capable as the kids at Crossroads, they just didn't have a lot of the opportunity. So that's even something I do now in the worlds that I'm in. Like, you know, I'm in social and you look at something that always, you know, bothers me. I look at like social teams, they'll post like their their team photo. Like, here's our social team. And it's like, damn, there's a lot of white people in this photo. Like we're, mm. but you guys are talking in a, in a tone and in a manner that isn't like, I would say, do you, do you talk the same way in your job interviews you do on your account? If you do, that's fine. Like, and I think it's something that surprised People, when they meet me, it's like, damn, you're just the way you tweet. Like, yeah, this is just me. Like, you know yeah. what I'm saying? You said humble and all those things, definitely. But I like to crack jokes, like to keep the mood light. So when people meet me in real life, it's like, damn, you really just, you know, you talk like you tweet. Where a lot of people you meet in real life, like, oh, I manage this account. It's like, well, wait a minute. Who are you getting all your info from and your content? Because you don't even act like this. These, yeah. You're not even interested in the content that you're putting out. Like, for yeah. me, like, everything I do is kind of consistent to who I am. But that's just kind of me and a part of the game, the things that as I identify as I get into this world of how I want my lasting impact to be and how I want to be able to contribute and help build and elevate this game. That's so interesting because as the one thing right before you came over, I was talking to BD and I was, uh, I was like, you know, he had mentioned that you guys have known each other since yeah. you're a little kids. So I was like, what's, what's a funny question I can like, you know, ask him. I'm like, give me some dirt. But, uh, but, and I asked him, I was like, is, is he, is he how he is on social media in the sense of like, is his personality very similar and right. his humor? 
express through his means as it seems, because there's a lot of times, I'm sure you've experienced this being in media and entertainment, what you see on camera is not necessarily the person that you're going to get. Yeah, and there's always sure. that like distinction. But for you, it, it does very much seem authentic, which kind of tells me that you have, you transitioned from basketball into the space that seemed to really fit yeah, you sure. and who you are. Yeah, I've always been kind of just a jokester, keep the mood light type of dude. Like I said, a lot more shy and introverted in my younger years, kind of broke out of my shell in college. But even being around somebody like a, a Baron, I remember the first time I met Baron, 54th Street School, and I remember it because uh, I was probably like nine or 10 years old. Uh, they had this fence you had to hop, and I was terrible at hopping fences. So I literally like got hung up on the fence trying to <laughs> hop over. But BD, we all knew Baron even then, and he was just like this godlike figure. Like everybody in the basketball community knew Baron. I remember Baron hops the fence easy, like looks real sweet as he does it. But back then, like everything was like, uh, Kerry Kittles used to have one sock up, one sock down. He played at Villanova. So BD had like the sweatpants, but just like the cool look and swag about it. And I told him I was going to Crossroads and he was just like, you know, like super excited and growing up in the same AAU program as well. So uh, funny story. I don't think I've ever told anybody this story, but Baron was probably a couple years older than this. And this was the same year, like Paul Pierce tells the story where him and Kevin Garnett teamed up. Mm -hmm. So Paul's on the older team. Baron's on, the, uh, on like a year or two younger team. We're on like the 12 and under team. But we're hanging out, Baron's room, feeling cool. Uh, Thad, who runs the program, like bangs on Baron's door. So we all go hide in the bathroom. We're not supposed to be hanging out with Baron. Like we're way too young. But BD always just kind of like oh. big brother took us in. So we're all we're all huddled in the bathroom trying to hide. Like as, uh, you know, Thad's kind of searching the room, seeing what's going on. He runs the bathroom, like sees us in there. <laughs> Kind of cusses us out, tells us we're all not playing the next game. Obviously, that wasn't the case, but but that's something about, about Baron. But I don't even know what the what the question was. No, but. that's awesome. I love. I can I can literally like see you huddled up, but and his his um the the way you uh, made the the gesture of like a big hug. He kind of yeah. is seemingly like that, and yeah, I'm sure sure. that was really important for you, you know, as a child. Yeah, for sure. But just to be around that experience, and then going to Crossroads, which is a predominantly white school. But you had, you know, a lot of black athletes there. And, you know, and I was the same grade as Damon Wayne's Jr. So me, me, me and Damon were, like, good friends in junior high. And, like, I would tell people, he was, like, you know, I thought I was funny. Like, he was, you know, probably one of the most funny people. I met. And he came. But that was his whole family's thing. Like, everybody in his family is funny as shit. So getting to have compete with those guys even at an at a early level, but also learning a lot from him, too, just in terms of timing, humor, and all types of stuff. And then I see him go on and carve out a successful career like his dad. It's like, yeah. you know, following the footsteps of your parents, which I think is kind of a theme of this this show. Yeah, but, you know, just being immersed in those worlds and those cultures and learning, doing the bar mitzvah scene. So for those who okay. don't know, L.A. private school, like bar mitzvahs are the shit, right? Parents are competing each other. It's not even for the kids. It's for the parents to compete against each other. So, you know, four seasons, like the nicest hotels, like... I didn't know this about L.A. Yeah, but this is like, you know, if you go to L.A., private schools, like the bar mitzvah scene, like, you know, kids have bar mitzvahs the same day. It's like, there's beef and tension and wars. because <laughs> oh, wow. like, who's going to which one? <laughs> oh, this person had, you know, this person show up. And they did theirs, you know, like just these cool-ass locations. But really, I realized it was just for parents. And that's kind of the L.A. Hollywood scene hmm. for them to stun on each other. So, like, some of the most extravagant parties I went to was like a 13-year-old, 7th grader. Like hitting these bar mitzvahs, fucking karaoke <laughs> machines, DJs, dancers, like all types of crazy shit. But this is what LA is. So I've been super humbled and blessed to be around. You know, I had friends who literally mansions in Beverly Hills and mm -hmm. friends who lived in, in in the heart of the hood 
didn't make a difference really just kind of how do you relate to these people and, and find common interests so you didn't so now you're exposed to all kinds of people and all sorts of experiences while living here in los angeles so once you left basketball what did you really what did you want to be um i, I really didn't I, I knew i wanted to, to write and, and make tv shows you know the opportunity to go work at fox sports kind of opened up like i said i was there making about ten dollars an hour but it was cool because we were working on the Fox lot on Pico. So mm. they film a bunch of TV shows, movies there. So we would be in like the Fox sports area, but like literally all the way across on the lot, they had like the, the, the uppity, like famous people commissary where they would go eat at. So I would literally make a point to go walk there every day, like grab my lunch, but just look around and be immersed in this world and kind of really just appreciate and respect it. That's the thing too. A lot of people who don't live out here think like, oh, you just roll the camera and go. It's like, nah, it's like 20 hour days and mm -hmm. a lot of grind, like, you know, working on shows like Legend of Chamberlain Heights or Colin in Black and White with Ava, like, you know, it's like 12, 14, 15, 18 hour days. Some, sometimes it just, you know, rolls into the next day and, you know, you look up and it's like two weeks down the road and you haven't really slept much in, in that time because you've just been going and grinding. And I remember there'd be times at NFL Network, I'd work 18, 20, 25 straight days in the heart of the season and that's just what it was nobody complained nobody you know but i go back and look at those things like you know finishing a shift at 2 30 in the morning going home being right back at 6 30 a.m to, uh. to, to you know to grind for another 12 hours and eventually you get kind of like you know when you go from an athlete like you practice three four hours then you kind of go on with your life you may have study hall that other stuff but going to those worlds was like damn i just worked 20 straight hours and i got to be back in three more hours to work another uh. 12 or you know, I felt like a doctor or some shit like that, just yeah. working these, these crazy... Making $10 or $8 exactly. an hour. <laughs> Making these crazy, crazy, crazy schedules. But then it, it just, now I look back in life and you asked a question earlier, like how am I so fast, so quick with it? It's like, go work highlights at NFL Network on a Sunday and just the, the amount of pressure. And it's like, you're either going to sink or swim. You're either going to succumb to that pressure, just like being an athlete, having to run out, you know, imagine like writing a shot sheet for somebody like Rich Eisen, who's, you know top of his game, award-winning, you know, broadcaster, like, you know, if there's something wrong on it, he's going to let you know about it. Yeah. So, you know, same thing with Ava. Imagine writing a script for Ava. You know, if there's something that she's not rocking with that script, she's going to let you know. So mm -hmm. your goal mm -hmm. is to make sure you put your best foot forward, mm -hmm. do the best that you can. And there's always going to be notes. There's always going to be criticism, whatever. But I think one of the reasons that people like me, somebody like Ava likes working with me, because she can give me criticism and know that I'm going to take it the same way a coach would, I'm not going to get mad about it or whatever. I'm going to go and prove, listen to what she has to say and really allow her to help me elevate to the next level that I can get to. Same yeah. thing with the Rich Eisen or all these, you know, talented people that I've been able to work with, Deion Sanders, people that, you know, you just look on the service. Deion was a Hall of Famer in his football career, but also as a broadcaster, now as a coach, like equally doing those same things. So just being around these type of people, learning great work habits, learning great professionalism, how to just operate in team environments, like mm -hmm. something that, you know, I'm super, super appreciative of and it's ultimately made me into who I am now so when you look at the 40 year old version of me it's having all these experiences I see a lot of people coming into this game that are young that try to skip steps like you know there's certain things like you know log hour press conference my first job at NFL Network I shit you not was I think I worked Mondays and Wednesdays but just logging press conferences wow. we had to do it by hand got in the by hand got in by hand like we didn't we weren't doing it on the computer back then Write them by hand. Oh. And I remember literally like, you know, from 8 to like 4.30 p.m. I remember every 
it was like Mike Holmgren would be my last press conference and he used to just talk. Like he would just start telling random stories about when he was a teacher and like all this other <laughs> stupid shit. And I have to log the whole thing, just waiting for him to give that 30 second bite on Matt Hasselback or whatever it was that I was gonna have to, you know, try to sell to my producer to get on the show. But I used to meticulously log everything. Like just I would you know when we did games, like same point, you know, you had to paper log a game. There may be a four-second cutaway of some obscure, you know, D-line coach or whatever that, you know, it may not be important to you then, but six months down the road, that that shot's going to be like, oh, we need footage of this dude or whatever. So everybody would just be so complimentary of how I would do my logs. I would color code and just be OCD with everything. Every shot I saw I was getting it. So when they would come back six weeks later, a month later, mm-hmm. you know, even a year later, pull out that log, hey, I need this shot from, you know, do you get the shot of whatever in the third quarter when he was rubbing his knee? Oh, yeah, right here, bam. And, but that kind of work work ethic and habits really helped elevate me to where I'm now. So when I'm watching stuff, you know, like, you know, you don't watch games the same way that the average consumer watches. Even now in my head, I'm still breaking down games for highlights, for moments. Oh, I know this is what's going to go take off on social. It's funny, I had a guy, uh, David Ubin from The uh, Athletic, was writing a profile on me. He's like, y'all want to sit with you and watch a game and see how you tweet. And I hate when those things happen because I feel pressure. Like, oh, I got to, like you know, find find a winner. And it's like, it's game. So you just never know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. We're watching a Mavs game. Luca, like funny thing happens, end up clipping off the little, there's a funny like freeze frame of him. And that thing ends up going viral as he's sitting there in that moment. So it's like, I don't ever feel pressure to do these things. Even now, I, I've, like I was tweeting probably like 800,000 times a month. Now it's like two to 300. Mm. Just to be strategic, selective. We're all watching the finals. Like, you know, I did for game two, Draymond Green should have got a second tech. Oh, he didn't get it. Or right, here's the funny, you know, Snoop court court photo that we can make a meme. Not a funny Snoop photo, but take this meme and make it transformative to represent Draymond's, you know, yeah, you know, praying that he didn't get a second tech, things like that. But that just finding the, the way that people communicate in the culture, and it's like even getting into social media for me was was super random. Like I had a bunch of friends that we used to be in the group chat. And they used to send a bunch of memes to each other. And I couldn't keep up with them. Like, like they would just be sending these funny ass memes, and like eventually they booted me out of the group chat because <laughs> no I literally way. couldn't keep up. And then now here we go. I'm like, you know, how long ago was that? Uh, this was probably maybe like ten years ago. Yeah, this was like 2013, 2014. And but do they, you still stay in touch with that? Yeah, we're all group? we're all still close. Do they think it's funny that you're who you are now on social media? Well, I, I always tell them like one of my good friends, Gene Barnes, who I played at UCLA with. He was he was kind of the, the, the architect of, of the chat. And I was, you know, super thankful and appreciative of them for really kind of like they were so ahead of the, the curve and just in wow. how they communicated. Like everything was in meme form, funny photos, whatever. And I'm just like, damn, I can't keep up with these dudes. Where are they finding these photos at and all this other stuff? So really helped kind of turn me to, into who I am and what I do on the social side. So, you know, Gene knows how much I love him and appreciate him. But <laughs> I kind of tell him that, too. He's, he's even sometimes like, I didn't even realize that, man, back then. But like, yeah, man, y'all booted me out the chat because I, I wasn't. But I deserved it. Like, I'm not mad about it. Like. I feel like this is like the Michael Jordan story about how he didn't make varsity the first time yeah, around. So you really, <laughs> so you just didn't make crew, the... just a bunch of funny dudes. All the memes were always hidden, and I would just sit and crack up. Then I'd try and like you weren't funny back in 2012, in. but you're yeah. funny now. Yeah, but you know now I'm still getting <laughs> it, and like I learned a ton from those experiences. That's great. Well, it's so interesting to hear about your path. About it makes sense all the different layers, the the joking and the f- humor within your family, um, the pranks. Uh, you going to that art school when you were in third or fourth grade, and then even the meticulous, detail-oriented nature of your first experience of getting into media and working at NFL Network. I mean, all those little things really 
really does. It's paying off now. And then even just that like friend chat that helped pave the way of like really trying to be quick-witted and memes yeah. and have that type of humor and conversation. But I think the other chapter that's really important is, is your experience at Comedy Central. Yep. So talk a little bit about that, how you got there and what that experience was. So Comedy Central, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was good. I like to joke and say that they turned me into the monster I am today. Cause they, <laughs> but I got a crash course into what Hollywood really is. And I, and I look back and I appreciate everybody who was a part of that project. So we were doing a website, uh, me and my, my former teammates at UCLA, Quinn Hawking and Ike Williams. Uh, after college, we kind of didn't know what we wanted to do. Started doing a website called Jersey Chaser. So it was, you look like the Bleach Reports now and those type of things. It was kind of an off-kilter version of that. Funny, a lot of stuff we were doing then was meme-based. Like, we would take mm. photos, just add funny captions or funny pictures. Like, you know, I still like love putting, like, a picture of Mr. Miyagi with, like, a quote bubble <laughs> on people's photos, but saying some, like, outlandish shit. So we would, we would just grind and write articles and I really like again when you look at all the stuff that makes me who I am now so I was working a full-time gig at, at NFL Network and also doing the, the website on the side so I'd literally be at work writing articles like discreetly but posting like 10 to 12 articles a day just grinding wow it, 10 to 12 yeah but they were they were like two three hundred word or less like you know what I mean which even then it was like it was just like who what when where why how like answer all those things in the article then you're good, like put it out. But funny stuff, like somebody tweeted some funny stuff or whatever it may be, or photos, whatever whatever was going on in the sports world, we we're kind of off kilter look at that. So we started doing a bunch of funny YouTube con uh, content, but like even those were memes that we didn't know we were doing. We were doing writer's rooms, we didn't know we were doing writer's rooms. We'd just be sitting in the living room, like, all right, let's pitch funny lines for whatever we're gonna cut. So ended up doing that, got the attention of some guys who were working in the uh, entertainment animation industry guy by the name of Brad Abelson and Mike Clements. Brad is actually a director on like the new Minions movie coming out. Mm. Worked for The Simpsons, but he was like super talented animator. And Mike Clements was a, an exec. He had a company with uh, Tom Werner called Good Humor that, that did a bunch of, they had a show called Good Vibes on MTV and a bunch of other stuff. So get a, a random cold email from these guys like, yo, we think your guy's shit's funny. We'd love to meet you. Turns out Mike lives in Westwood. We were all living in a house in Westwood at that point after UCLA. It was kind of like, our version of a frat house. We came up on like the shittiest house on the block, but it had a pool. Like six of us living in there, stayed in that thing for like seven years. Like started out, it was like the basketball house, all God, but as everybody went on with their life. And then by the time it ended, it was a bunch of just like, you know, random people from all across <laughs> the world living in there. But so Mike, we ended up meeting at the W in Westwood. Uh, ended up meeting with them. He's like, yo, I'm working on this idea for LeBron. Think you guys would be a great fit. Showed us the, the stuff he was doing. I was just like, Look, no knock, like, love LeBron, but our level of humor and our brand of humor is a lot more risque and out of pocket than, you know, I think he would be comfortable with. So he was like, all right, what do you guys got? So I literally was like, yo, well, we used to sit on the end of the bench at UCLA during games and talk a bunch of shit and have a good time. You know, his eyes light up, and then we kind of just started developing the project from there. But this was, like, 2009. It was like, you know, so we're thinking, like, oh, we're about to have a TV show. We're going to be the mm -hmm. shit. Several years later, like we didn't pitch Comedy Central till 2013. So we worked on that thing development for like four years, wow. bunch of peaks and valleys. Like they would go dark on us. We wouldn't hear from from several months at a time. It's kind of like a movie hook, like Peter Pan, like coming back to see Wendy and every time older and older and older. And it's like, <laughs> fuck, I don't want to go any more adventures, Peter. I'm like 80. Like, what the hell? But it was, so it was kind of that type of situation. But eventually we go pitch Comedy Central 2013. Uh, you know, they sold the show in the room. They brought on Michael Starberry, who was uh, uh, Emmy nominated for his work with Ava on When They See Us. He was a showrunner on Colin Black and White, still one of my best friends to this day. 
So they bring on Starberry. He was he was super hot at that time. He had sold another uh, pilot to Comedy Central called Blackjack. So me and Starberry just clicked right away. He's from Milwaukee. My dad played for the Bucks. Like mm. he used to slang tickets outside of games in his youth. So it was just like natural. Like we've been, you know, we're riding with each other. So we got this great crew together. We go pitch Comedy Central 2013, and he literally sold shows at that point. Me and Quinn hadn't. And literally, like after the meetings, like you know, you just sold the TV show, right? We're just like, what? And then, wow. you know, sure enough, we get a call a day later. Yo, they want to buy it. So, spent another two years in development, doing all types of shit. Show finally gets greenlit in 2015. We spend, uh, you know, we get a great writers' room, bunch of talented people. Like Erica Badu comes on to help do some of the music. Like, I mean, just just an amazing thing. Carl Jones, who was, had worked on Boondocks and does a bunch of stuff, did like the jellies with Tyler, the creator, a bunch of other stuff. Uh, and just an amazing team, Jay Farrow, Tiffany Haddish. This is Tiffany right before she kind of blew up. Mm-hmm. So we were able to still get her. She was kind of just on her ascension. But I had this great crew of people, uh, Neil Brennan, who Neil and Dave Chappelle worked together, created Chappelle Show. Neil, one of the funniest people on the planet. So funny. Jamie Kennedy came in. Wow. Remember Jamie Kennedy came in for his audition. He was like in scrubs because he was like doing another, you know, another role somewhere else. Came in and read. We're like, yo, we'll give you whatever you want, dog. Like, wow. Big fan. But so just to be in that world, man, it, it was such an amazing thing, too, because that show, they were so excited about it. So they gave us a second season order fashion. I think any show in Comedy Central history. We did our first table read. President Network came. All the execs came. And for my thing is like, I'm, I'm always just with my producer hat on. I'm like, oh, we're doing a table read. You can invite anybody. I'm like, yeah, we need to make this shit crack. So when they come, like we got, we had like a hundred people in there. Normally you might get 20, 30 people at those things. But I remember like Morris Chestnut was there, just random human beings. I'm like, shit, Morris Chestnut's here. I got to really put on my A game. This is like, you know, Ricky from Boys in the Hood is one of my heroes. But they loved, loved it. And But then, you know, you fast forward 2016 and you kind of see the other side of Hollywood. Show comes out, numbers don't perform as well. They paired us up with South Park. I always thought, you know, for them, it was like, yo, this is our best show, best lead-in. I was even thinking in my head back then, like, yo, you're trying to tell South Park fans that this is the new South Park, but all South Park fans wanted South Park. So mm. kind of didn't really help us in terms of the promo, getting it out there, because all the South Park fans, and there's something else, too, that, that really bothers me that I'll just touch on. You go look at IMDb, right, and anybody can vote on IMDb shows, but if you look, by and large, any black show that goes on IMDb will get, like, negative ratings before it even comes out because there's, you know, just racial undertones of, of, of bullshit that goes on there that other people, like, you know, Matt Cherry and other people a lot more talented than myself have pointed out. So I remember showing even air yet, and we had, like, a four-star rating. It's like, you haven't even seen the show, hmm. and you're already, you know, giving it one star, just shitting on it, and it's just like... Why? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, but it was stuff that bothered me. But I also used to say, like, who the fuck gives a shit about somebody like what type of person votes on IMDb for shows? Like, that's not the demo for this project. But show came out. Numbers didn't perform really at the level that Comedy Central wanted. So you kind of saw the flip of that. I remember there was like an Emmys party, maybe like a week after the first episode came out. And prior to that, everybody, oh, we love you guys. Oh, you, yeah, you Nick South Park, whatever. Numbers come out. It's like people wouldn't even look at us. It's like, you know, imagine making eye contact with the same person that was, like, saying, and then they kind of just see you and look away. And I'm so, like, keen and cognizant of all that type of shit. Mm. Just from playing sports where I can just look around a room and notice stuff that's going on that, you know, the average human being is not even going to see. And it's just like I could feel energy was off, vibe was off. So first season runs, and then they come back next for second season. We have the meeting, and it's like, yeah, we're going to put you guys. They moved to another slot. It was, like, Sundays at 1130. I'm like, all right, I go look. It's me. I'm, like, detective boy. Which shows come on Sunday at 11.30? Oh, shit, Rick and Morty. Like, oh, you put us in the same slot as Rick and Morty. 
And that's the first thing I thought in my head. It's like, well, shit, I'm going to go watch Rick and Morty. I'm not watching our show. Like, mm -hmm. this is one of the most prolific animated shows of all time. So at that moment, I knew, all right, right in the wall, show's getting canceled. And then after that experience, you know, you want to talk about a next chapter. This is what kind of made me the person I am now and why I said they created a monster. Because after that phone stopped ringing, nobody would give us the time of day. Like, you know, I mean, we went from, you kind of see both sides of it. Oh, you're going to be the greatest thing ever. Kind of same thing in sports and basketball. Oh, you're going to be NBA. Oh, it didn't work out. Like, uh, I don't care about you anymore. I'm on to the, whatever the next thing is. So I got to see that firsthand, and, and it was really bothersome. And uh, it's funny, my wife has this video on her phone. She shot at me, probably like the lowest point of my life. I was probably like 380 pounds, like super depressed. But I just look over at her. I'm like, yo, this ain't the end of me. Like, you know, I'm going to make sure that all these people remember who I am, and I'm going to be back someday. So we just watched it recently, and I was literally like almost, almost in tears, just like, damn, it actually really worked out. Like, you know, I thought it was going to be full of shit and, like, you know, not lead to anything. But to be able to go to that moment now, and it's funny, a lot of those same people who, you know, wouldn't give us a time of day or look us in the eye are like, oh, I saw this and I saw that and saw the LeBron tweeting, like, you know what I mean? So for me, it's kind of like it was a full circle moment, but that's part of the grind and kind of who I am and why I'm so humble because I was operating the fear that I could go back to the, that time when, you know, mm -hmm. I couldn't get a job and literally – I was going to go drive Uber just because I needed to do something. No knock to anybody who drives Uber, but it was just like, I was so close to doing it. But I was like, damn, I can have somebody I know pick them up and then see me driving Uber and how they're going to respond and react to that, which I know is a little shallow, but it was also like, yo, I'm going to keep grinding. I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to try and get to where I know I belong. So still, still working on it, but getting a lot closer. I'll say that. That's so awesome. And, and your wife, she played, she swam at UCLA yeah. and, Seems like you guys have really known each other for a really, really long time. There's that loyalty, and yeah. for her to you guys watching that video again, and it's so interesting because you know this this show is is focused on not just the transition from sport, but the multiple transitions and chapters that we all experience. And it sounds like while your transition from basketball was difficult. I'm so glad I asked about that chapter because I also had a feeling that that was that really seemed to be like one of the most, if not the most like pivotal moments in your life, in your professional trajectory that like really transform you, which means that you had to be in a really tough, bad place almost, because that's, those are the moments that change us and transform yeah, sure. us. I mean, after college in it, again, you go from, you know, being this athlete that has all this gear, whatever, to I remember, you know, probably the lowest point of my professional career. Uh, it's a true story, like trying to find a job, was like on Craigslist, couldn't find anything, didn't really want to ask my mom or dad for help. So I ended up getting a job, like basically going door to door trying to sell like printer paper. Mm. When is this? Uh, this is like 2005, right after college. Literally borrowed a suit from my dad, doesn't really fit right. He's kind of got an odd shaped body, but we're, we're around the same height. Nice suit, like nice tailored suit for him, not tailored for me. But so I'm walking around with this dude and we're in San Pedro literally like just going door to door at spots end up going to some spots somebody recognizes me and i think i actually helped get the sale there like you know they kind of just took pity on us and like all right you know we'll get you but just like i'm going door to door trying to sell printer paper like and then after that i'm just like yo i can't do that like, I, I gotta figure something out so started grinding figured it out got on at, at, at fox sports and nfl network and these were like part-time gigs i was at nfl network like one or two days a week they liked the work I did, so they brought me on for more. It was like one of like you know the first fifty hires at the company. This was like when it was back in its infancy. So to be able to do all those things now, and you know, starting at Info Network as a PA, leaving as a production supervisor, 
and then coming back and doing stuff. They just did a like a broadcast boot camp mm-hmm. recently where you know I'm meeting like Richard Sherman and Kyle Van Noy, Gerald McCoy, all these legends, guys that I used to like, you know, want to wow. work on shows. I'd build graphics for them and whatever, like with their, you know. But I'm talking to my guys that work there, and they're like, yeah, man, we told everybody you were coming. They got, like, super excited. I'm just like, damn. Like, it's like, a, again, one of those more full-circle moments where I was literally at this place, and it's a different office now. They moved to Inglewood, SoFi. But I was here as a PA, and now I'm coming back, like, literally speaking, you know, in this boot yeah. camp to guys, giving them advice. But being a straight shooter, I think I had, like, signed some waiver that I'm not allowed to curse, but, you know, I was cursing up a storm. <laughs> like, it's like, yeah, I'm like, what are they going to do, not pay me? Like, it is what it is, but... <laughs> So just seeing all that type of stuff. But that's the kind of thing for me, too, why I'm so humble. And I try to just be as helpful as I can to other people that are in, in this position. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you talk about social media, it's like a multi-billion dollar industry. Like, it's there's such an amount of money and people that are trying to get to it. There's been such a huge shift, you know, working in TV and working in digital and seeing the yeah. shift now. So all the TV people are trying to come to digital. And it's like, oh, well, this would just be like TV. And it's like, no, this is digital. It's the Wild West, like you need to go grab your viewership. You're not just going to be able to throw a ton of money at it. A lot of times when you throw a ton of money at stuff on the digital side, it has the adverse effect. It doesn't work. Like, it, mm-hmm. you know, people see it as ad and they don't rock with it. If you look at the most influential people on social, the influencers, whatever, a lot of these people have built themselves up from the ground up, like train themselves, put out, you know, I have the most, uh, most I look at somebody like uh, Mark Phillips and his crew, RDC World, and the level of content that they're doing and, and, and sketches and skits and just how funny they are. And it's like, these. this is the future. Somebody like a Drewski. Drewski literally has created a whole lane for himself making videos while he's just going to do normal stuff. Like, I'm at a dinner. Okay, let's make a quick sketch of, like, you know, I would be the jealous boyfriend here. And that thing does millions of views. Or, hey, you know, we're at this event. Now I'm just going to do a quick sketch or whatever, you know. But that's the type of stuff where those people will never be given the, the time of day if they walk into an exec's office or whatever and said, hey, I got these funny sketches, nobody would give a shit. But now they carve their own lane out. Now those same people will come to them, yeah. offer them jobs. So whatever it is on the social side, I just try to be a resource and be like, look, like I'm more than happy to help people. Anybody needs advice, whatever. Run stuff by me. Just try to be a resource. I've had so many great mentors that have helped me. And it's like, that's the one thing I can give back. Like everybody sees this King Josiah. I have, honestly, I hate when people do that. I'm just like, that's just Josiah. Like, well, it's like, yeah, LeBron called himself King James. I just, like, Josiah was a king in the Bible, too. That's why I picked the social media handle. I thought it was a lot cooler. I made this in, like, 2011, whatever it was. I thought it was a lot cooler then. But (laughs) I don't, you know, everybody kind of approaches me like that. You see, I'm just a regular guy, like, shorts, T-shirt. Like, I wear this pretty much everywhere. This is, like, my uniform wherever I go. Hate suits. Like, I literally have one suit (laughs) that, at this point, I've worn so much that it's not, like, you know, I could switch ties, but... But that's just kind of me. So, but really just trying to be a resource for, for people coming up in this game because there's so much money that can be made. And even me now carving a career. Like, it's crazy. When I started writing in TV and started getting those TV checks, it was like, wow, this is the most money I've ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. And now social is literally catching up to that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? To do stuff I was already going to do. Like, I did a, a Super Bowl live tweet for DirecTV. And it's like, jokes on you guys. I was going to tweet anyway. Like, <laughs> now you're paying me to do it. Like, sh- like, I'm in heaven. I get to watch the Super Bowl. Yeah. And make money doing it to the point where I literally, like, Twitter, like, had to take it for me to go. I'm like, nah, I'm going to stay here and just live tweet from the crib because it, it's more financially beneficial. Same thing, game two of the finals. Twitter hits me up like, yo, we got the suite in uh, San Francisco for game two. It's like, no, nah, I'm doing a live stream with Gilbert Arenas now. Like, you know what I mean? Like, somebody who I looked up to, we grew up in the Valley together. 
he's a year older than me, but I've always had a tremendous amount of respect for. Now I get to where I'm literally sitting in Gilbert's basement doing a live stream with him and Kenya Martin and KJ Martin. Like these are I love it. opportunities that you get to carve off. So people saw the memes, people saw that stuff, but now I'm getting to do a bunch of stuff in the hosting space. Jobs that used to be reserved for guys who played in the NBA or All Stars or Hall of Famers. Now, if you you have good nuanced takes and you can build up your own following, that's currency that you can leverage now to create opportunities for yourself. Well, we're we're all rooting for you. I know I am, and you are a breath of fresh air on social media. I kind of have this love-hate relationship with social media, but you are literally like the person that always makes me laugh. And I, I really enjoy that. And speaking of hustling, I want to be mindful of your time. It is 4.15. It's 4.15 right it now. Is, so I know you got to go. Yep. So I want to say thank you so much for joining the show. Appreciate it. High five. Thank you again for opening up and sharing your story. You got to jump on a call. Big thank you to Josiah for opening up and not only sharing his story, but answering some really personal and difficult questions about his journey, especially as it relates to his relationship with basketball and his father. Really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. For more episodes, you can just visit our show page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. And to watch the full version of these interviews, you can head on over to YouTube to search for the next chapter with Prim's Ripapat. Also, don't forget, subscribe to us, like us, give us star rating. We really appreciate you listening and also, of course, showing your support. And feel free to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Prim underscore Seripipat. The next chapter with Prim Seripipat is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.